Hi and welcome back to the Port to Port podcast for episode 6. 2020 has been a crazy year for pretty much all of us. Taking on a VP job at a global shipping company would be difficult at any time, never mind in the middle of a pandemic. Today's guest hasn't had it easy in his first few months, but it doesn't seem to faze him. In our last podcast for the year, it was a pleasure to have the recently appointed VP of Gas Operations from TK Gas, Chris McDade, in the podcast. It was great to hear Chris go through his vivid memories of joining his first vessel from looking up the country on a map to his thoughts when he first saw the vessel. And then we went right through his journey around the world and working on some incredible projects. I hope you enjoy the podcast and have a wonderful Christmas. So Chris McDade, thank you very much for, for joining us. A pleasure to, to have you on the podcast. Um, actually, before we get going, I, I owe you a thank you, you and your, your predecessor. Um, we were at an IMRS dinner and we, we spoke about the podcast and you guys pushed me that much on why I should do it or not why I should do it, but what was the point in it that it, it made me kind of refine my ideas a bit better. So yeah, big, big thank you for that. So I've done an intro, but if you don't mind telling the listeners who, who you are and, and what you do. Yeah, no worries. Well, thanks very much, Gordon, for having us along. Uh, I suppose, yeah, I should really thank my predecessor, Ian, for volunteering me for this, even though he's <laughs> retired into the sunset and I've been dropped in it. So, yeah, thanks, Ian. <laughs> uh, okay, so, yeah, my name's Chris McDade. Uh, I head up operations for TK Gas here in Glasgow. So my actual title is Vice President Gas Operations. The reason it's gas operations and not gas fleet or anything like that is because as well as the... LNG vessels that we have. We also have a terminal in Bahrain as well, so I'm responsible for that um, that section of the business as well. Brilliant, brilliant. So you obviously, well, looking at obviously looking at your history, you started off with BP, um, but you're you're a, you're a Glasgow boy. You, well, you just know? outside, I believe, Turkey. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can class that as Glasgow, but we'll, you know, we'll, yeah. plenty. So let's let's just between that. Sorry, yeah, okay. We need to edit that in. So obviously, how did you how did you get into how did you actually get into the industry and start? So yeah, I mean, it's like everything when you're in high school, you don't really know what you want to want to do. So I kind of kicked around the idea of like going into the armed forces, and God help me, at one point I was even thinking of the RAF. Right. Uh, and it was my it was my grandfather, so my cousin or my second cousin, I should say, John. He'd started an engineering cadetship. He was like a year ahead of me, so he'd started with uh, mobile shipping. And at the time, my granddad sort of suggested it, and I thought, yeah, okay, that sounds good. Uh, obviously, at that time, it was only engineering or deck that you could do, and it was literally a tick in the box. And me being me, didn't really fancy getting my hands dirty or working in a big manky engine room. So <laughs> decided to go along the uh, the deck officer route. And my grandfather's brother, who was a steward on the whiskey boats that used to go between Kelvin Hall in Canada, really? when I told him that I picked a uh, deck and it was his grandson, John, obviously, who's an engineer. He's like, just as well, son, because engineers call themselves officers, but they aren't. Right? So he was, <laughs> he was quite happy about that. John, not so much. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, started in 1997, right. I think it was, as a, a squeaky voice wee deck cadet. And again, I'd went with, um, I went with Clyde Marine Training, but at that time they were uh, responsible for mobile. And I was, at the time when you were doing it, and I think it's the same, you don't actually pick the company that you want to go with. You can sort of put your preference. And then obviously I think right. I'd tackle it. Uh, Blue Funnel Line. 
I think, which was like a banana company that used to, you know, run refrigerated cargoes, and the other one was Mobile. And I got Mobile because uh, my cousin was in it, so that that's literally it. And that's how. That's you, how sorry, I sorry. Did you pick Mobile or did you? I picked it right. Wait. So Mobile, Mobile was my first choice. Blue Funnel was the second one, and that's how literally. I fell into the sort of oil and gas sphere, you know, sat in a can in the the halls of residence canteen in the Nautical College at the Gorbals on a yeah. on a Monday in September, and you know, just getting your name read out, mobile shipping, stood up, went and got the company tie, and that was it. Really? That's what about well, that is to be fair, <laughs> Think about the small decisions. Jeez, it, it is, and it's funny when you think about it. It's that you know that little. Uh, that little gateway, as it were, and that's what sort of starts your starts your career off. And one of the guys who was sat next to me, and we're still uh, really good friends now. He got a he got an offshore company, right? And I always remember, and we still slag him for it. That he was nearly crying, right, when he got told he was working for a company in the North Sea and wasn't getting to, you know, I put it in American commas, travel the world for a proper gutted. And I still I love to remind him of that to this day. <laughs> Nightmare. Well, I suppose you obviously you owe your second cousin a, a few beers. Then did they, did you? I know, I know. He's out. Uh, he's. I think the last I heard from him, he's out working for the Sultan of Oman on private yachts. So he's okay. doing. He's doing that. So it, obviously, it's funny how careers sort of diverge. But I, that's what he's he's out doing now. So obviously, so we go from there then, and then you went from mobile shipping. How long were you with them before you went to BP? So I completed my cadetship with mobile, and at the time. Uh, so Mobile was a great company to work with. They had lots of like, old tonnage. So I was working. My first ship was a 33-year-old product tanker down in East Africa, which was an absolute midden, right? You know, nothing worked. It was all manual valves. Uh, but the good thing about that, and it's, you know, hindsight's great when you look back on stuff, obviously, with rose-tinted glasses, it really allowed you to sort of learn your craft, as it were, about tanker operations, because when you were stripping out the tanks, you know, that's when the levels getting to the bottom because it was manual valves we used to say <laughs> you shouldn't do it these days and obviously don't right but uh you know you would lift lift up the butterworth plate and with a heliograph which is like the shiny mirror they use to attract attention when you're in a lifeboat right uh, we would use that to reflect the sun down into the tank to what's called the elephant's foot where the suction of the pump was and you right. could see as you had someone on the valve closing it in you could see the effect on it. So that was really good when you eventually moved into new tonnage yeah. and you're in a control room and everything's remote. You understand the impact that you're having when you're throttling valves because you've actually seen it. Yeah. So being as like a first trip deck cadet, that was, you know, you're never going to get experience like that again, you know, and that's something that you can't replicate anywhere. So did that. And I think in 2001, uh, Mobile was taken over or joined with Exxon. So it then became Exxon Mobile. And Exxon being Exxon were extremely squeamish about having any sort of tonnage attached to them, so they were getting rid of the ships. Right. So when I finished um, my cadetship, my training officer down in London and said, look, if you can get something else, we won't hold you to your two-year uh, contract because basically it's the end of shipping for us. So very fortunately for me at that time, uh, BP were going through a huge fleet expansion programme and mm-hmm. basically fired off an email to the Isle of Man who did the uh, the manning for BP and given a job immediately, right? There was no no messing around. Flew over to the Isle of Man, did some paperwork, and then I joined my first ship as third mate 
for like a week later down in Australia. So it's interesting, yeah. you fast forward now to these times where you've got lots of newly qualified officers where that story just wouldn't replicate to what it was then. So I started with BP, I think it was in two, April 2002. Right. Started with them uh, initially on the oil fleet. So when I joined the first ship, again, older tonnage, the British skill yeah. that was actually built in Belfast. And I think you had the uh, yeah, yeah, John Wood. You know, Harlan Wolf yeah. on the week there. So yeah, everything, you know, around all the fair leads, Belfast, Harlan Wolf, all that sort of stuff. So that was my first uh, BP ship. He actually, he was saying, I think it was, a, I can't remember, I don't want to say it from wrong, but I think it was a Canterbury. So the first vessel that he was on was built at Harland and Wolf as well. So it's amazing how that's yeah. There's a great chance of that happening back, you know, if you think about it back in the days. Yeah, I think so. But even then, I think because the S class were all built in British yards, so right. you know there was a success skill. Uh, I think the other ones were built in Newcastle. One was on the Clyde as well. I think that they were the last BP tankers ever to be built in the UK. Right. And it was, it was a really well-built ship, obviously, quite a funny-looking accommodation, but it was almost like a castle. Right. It didn't have the extended bridge wings out. But, yeah, no, that was a, so that was a, a nice ship to join, especially that run. It was going between the Gulf and Australia, so it was good. Right. I actually even got shore leave, amazingly. So, <laughs> night, so it was good. <laughs> Superb. Well, it sounds pretty good anyway, to be honest. But So oil then for a few years and before you went on to, did you start with LPG or did you start with LNG? No, so I'll just give you, a, you know, a run through the whole BP yeah, yeah. career. Uh, so I did, let's see, I did two trips on oil with BP. So I did the skill, then did the Laurel, which was a new build coming out of Japan. So that was part of that fleet expansion. So that was an Aframax. And then from there, uh, I moved over to gas where I stayed uh, my entire career with BP. So moved over to the trader class, which was, you know, steam, Mark Three membrane uh, ships trading between the, well, basically everywhere, to be honest, but mainly trading between, like, uh, Arabian Gulf to Spain, like Barcelona, Cartagena did some ports down there. That was quite a regular run for us. And then switched over to Trinidad's East Coast at that time, actually. So we were loading in Trinidad and discharging in a terminal called Cove Point, which these days... There's now an export terminal, so it shows you what's happened, you know, in terms of sort of LNG cycle, yeah. uh, cycle with that. So yeah, stayed on gas, got my mates, got my old man's, and then I think in 2000 and 2009 moved over to upstream and production. Right. So it's interesting. You make all these wee connections as you go through your career and. It was a guy I was in college with who had moved over and he was working on, it was the Savan Voyager, uh, which comes full tilt and I'll explain that in a minute. But that was a cylindrical FPSO in the North Sea and I was home on leave. And actually, I think I might have been doing some moonlighting on the Stena Caledonia, right, to get some, I can't, for whatever reason, I got don't asked by admit it. Don't, don't admit it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was working on there, and it's one of these things you always remember, right, and I took a phone call, and I was on the car deck, and it was my, my friend, he's like, listen, there's a job came up in the other installation uh, in the North Sea on the cylindrical FPSO, and that was the Savan Hummingbirds, right, so it was first of its kind, it hadn't been done before, and the reason it was cylindrical, a small capacity and the idea was 
you know, it would go into uh, fields where it was only like a couple of years field life, so it wasn't worth putting in all the infrastructure. Yeah. And it would go on station, suck up all the oil from the wells, and then move, be towed off and go to another one, like a hummingbird, right? But it sort of takes it and then moves off. Yeah. She's like, do you fancy it? And I was like, well, yeah, right. So I had the interview in Aberdeen. And bear in mind, I haven't probably done an interview since a proper one, since I started as a cadet in 1997. So I did this interview, and without a doubt, Gordon, it was the most technical interview I have ever had in my life. And even to this day, I don't even know how I passed it, right? <laughs> because they gave us, I mean, bear in mind, I've been working in LNG since uh, 2003, something like that, and I hadn't been near an oil vessel, crude oil washing or an air gas or anything like that, and got plumped down in this <laughs> boardroom in Aberdeen, throwing a, a schema or a, a diagram of this cylindrical FPSO with a cargo tank arrangement and get asked how I would load it and how I would discharge it. And I had to go through how I would go about doing yeah. stability on something that is completely unique. Right? Obviously, I've done it right because I've got the job. <laughs> thank, thank goodness. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and worked in there. And that was a real... From moving into upstream production, that was a real baptism of fire, right? You know, because you come from, coming from BP, there is a level of arrogance, right, in shipping where you think, ah, you know, I work in BP, nobody can tell me anything when it comes to safety and control work and isolation standards and all of this sort of stuff. And I work in LNG, that's at the forefront of all sort of shipping operations. And then you go on this FPSO and you are taken, taken back to school in a big, big way because the level of controller work, risk assessment, uh, isolation standard is far and above yeah. so much uh, superior than what you would experience in any kind of shipping company. Right. That's pretty, it's amazing. It's, obviously, it's a totally different, well, it's, a, it's not totally different, but it's different in, in, in terms of press as well. So there's a lot of these things that comes from the media per se, or the perception of the oil industry that has to be that way obviously yeah def definitely and it's because obviously you've got stcw and ism and all these sort of things that govern shipping but you've got in the um, in the north sea in the british sector particularly you've got the health and safety executive yeah. which are no joke and they're no joke coming on from you know the cullen inquiry which was following on paper alpha and all the uh, all the sort of the standards that they've got to protect people and that's what it is so it was a huge a really really steep learning curve but something that was you know incredibly enjoyable you know but it was it was, it was a, a really difficult job in terms of just getting yourself up to that standard that what's expected from an offshore point of view yeah how when you made the move then from from obviously sailing like what, what was your what was the thought process behind it was it family related was it did you feel as if it was time to just come ashore no. It's and my personal life is a wee bit or private life rather is a wee bit different because my wife's in the same industry, so we actually met each other when we were uh, cadets in college. So I'm quite fortunate in the sense of, you know, we don't I don't have one of these sort of uh, home lives where you're expected to be home and the pressure to you know leave deep yep. sea and get something closer to home. Never had that, to be honest. I think the main thing really was, I mean, don't get me wrong, the leave rotation was considerably better, right? It was two weeks on, three weeks off, right? Which, you know, at that time, fantastic. Uh, it was just something, it was just more of a new challenge. You know, it's not something that I'd done before. So I did, there was an almost, there wasn't like a conscious decision where I thought I wanted to get a ship in or anything like that. You know, it wasn't, 
there wasn't threat of redundancy or, you know, there was talk of like shrinking the fleet or anything like that. You know, I was coming from a very comfortable, stable company, but this just came up and it was some, it really was something a bit different. And it's one of these things similar to back when my, uh, when I was choosing my company for mobile, it was one of these things where doing that then opened up so many more other opportunities along along the way and really sort of shaped, I suppose, sort of helped me put me on the path to the position that I'm in at the moment because you do have that other strand to your bow, as it were. You know, you've got something a bit different from your average person that's been in shipping their entire yeah. career. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. It's, it's, it's about adding everything to your, adding another string to your bow, I suppose. But then, so when did you, <clears throat> excuse me, there's another thing I, Actually, before we get there, you are, have you finished up with the, the the Navy, the Royal Navy? Yeah. 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 So obviously, I was in the. Uh, Did you run out of time? Have you not got enough time anymore? Or? Just not, just not got enough time. I mean, so obviously, uh, did I was in the Royal Navy Reserve for since two thousand and nine, right? Which is probably, I think, it was roughly the same time that I came into the North Sea because obviously, all this leave, three weeks yeah. off, fantastic. You could plan stuff. And it's something that I always fancied doing. And again, that was more of a challenge with, I wanted to see if I could, do, actually see if I could do it, right? So obviously... What, what, do you mean, sorry. what do you mean by that? See if you could do what? See if you could actually pass my commission, right? So right. if I could go down and uh, sit the Admiralty interview board and then go to Dartmouth at BRNC and pass everything that you have to pass as part of your initial naval officer training. Because it's quite a... It's not easy, right? Days gone by, it used to be if you were a master mariner, you would just basically walk in to the Navy, like, here's your here's your, your Lieutenant Braid and your sword. Right. Welcome aboard, as it were. Then they changed it, and rightly so, because obviously it's a little, little bit of a different skill set where you had to go down and follow the same process that everyone else done. But upon passing your initial Naval training and your fleet boards and sea time because you also have to do like a mini orals for the navy right so you go and do your fleet time which is generally on a capsule ship which is like something like uh, ocean albion like an lpd or an lph at that time or we actually even had illustrious and then come back and be examined by it's only like a four ring or a captain and two commanders right. would take you through various operational aspects like working on a ship to, right. so, do all that but great time really enjoyed it absolutely fantastic done some interesting stuff uh, but when I got appointed to being vice president uh, with TK you ca- I can't commit to mobilizing you know I can't just leave the company for six months and say thanks everyone <laughs> I'm off I'm off for six months so it's not fair in the Royal it's not fair in the Navy and it's not fair in TK so yeah. I made the decision then to resign my commission. You know, lots of people do it. Lots of people will do like the two-week commitment, which is absolutely fine. That's for them. But for me, it was more of a personal choice. I didn't think it was right taking the money and not saying that you would go if the balloon went up. So I thought that was unfair. So that was just my own choice with that. No, no, fair enough, fair enough. Would you, I mean, it's it's a, it's a, I suppose, from the outside looking in, it looks like a really kind of good way to do it. And it, and it, it, do you think it adds something to you? But do you think it's something that people should consider for coming ashore? To obviously, people for the Royal Navy would be people in the UK. But do you think that, that would you recommend it? Do you think it had a, a an, an impact on you that's helped you get to where, where you are? 
Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, definitely, actually. I mean, you do a lot of stuff is kind of unconscious that you do with the RN in terms of like leadership and, you know, the sort of management side of things, because everyone thinks that, you know, force a lot of guys that are ex-forces, a lot of civilian employers will be reluctant to take them on because there's this sort of fear or bias that they think it's going to be like the old-fashioned sergeant major barking orders at everyone, whereas it is so far removed from that, that is not the case, you know. So they give you a lot of leadership training and they talk about, and it's something that stays with me, the flexing your leadership style. So, you know, you can go into what you would class as war fighting mode where it's very direct and it's, you know, you will do this and I want this done by then. And then there's the other side of the scale where it's much more collaborative and you're bringing people along with you, right, rather than, and don't get me wrong, there is times for both. You know, if we are manning uh, an ERT, we are dealing with a major incident on one of our vessels, mm. that's the time for direct leadership where it's very much, this has to happen and it has to happen quickly. But then on normal times, right, or to Navy terms in peacekeeping mode, yeah. it's very much more collaborative. And, you know, doing that for over 10 years, that gave me both those sort of sides, sides of the coin, as it were. So, yeah, I mean, I would... Obviously, I'm biased with this one, but I would definitely recommend it. The um, and in the branch that I worked in for the uh, the Navy was amphibious warfare, which is they have opened it up, but it used to be exclusively merchant Navy guys that were in there. Right. Okay. So you meet a whole a whole load of people uh, that are in there that are in different facets of the organisations. You know, there's guys from Shell, Chevron in there. So and you're meeting them under you know when you've lit- quite literally got a different hat on right yeah but you know you meet a lot of people and there's all there's various touch points with the uh, the industry and all of that so yeah I would definitely recommend it I think it's completely worthwhile was that was you obviously just the, the names that you've said there was that encouraged when you were like BP or is that encouraging the oil majors it's not so I wouldn't say it's encouraged but. Crucially, it's not discouraged. Right? Right. So BP, for instance, at the time, it was called the Sabre Act, where they would give you, uh, they were signed up to it. Now it's the Employer Engagement, or what do they call that? It's, they've got various awards now for yeah, for basically employers, for employer of choice for the armed forces, that sort of stuff. So right. silver, well, bronze, silver, gold. If you're a gold employer, then you allow your staff away to go and do their reserve time. So that's companies like Barclays and, you know, big big organisations. Yeah. So BP would allow you that time to go in, um, to go in away and do your reserve service if that's what you wanted to do. I think, yeah, it wasn't, not, not openly encouraged, but not discouraged. And I think that's the key thing, that it's not discouraged because there'll be some employers out there that think, you know, I need to release this person for two weeks to go away and do their... Uh, the two-week annual commitment, which you know, it's not it's not for all employers, but I think most big organisations do support it rather than encourage or discourage. That makes makes sense. So then, obviously, we can just kind of, in terms of your like the almost the run through of, of your your career. You obviously then joined TK um, in twenty sixteen. Yeah, so a couple of wee steps before that. So working in the uh, Sorry, forgive me, behave, <laughs> Gordon. Settle down, settle down. Damn it, damn it, Janet. Right. So the uh, yeah, so worked in the North Sea for a year. Same guy again that phoned me about the job in the North Sea. He then moved over to BP Angola. All right, okay. All right, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So again, he was out in Singapore, uh, standing by this FPSO conversion. And again, phoned me uh, and said, listen, there's this job coming up. I think you really want to have a look at it. And then 
had a look and it was an incredibly exciting project. Uh, 2.4, so at the time, ultra deep water, FPSO, never been done, first of its kind. So everything was sort of designed from the ground up, be it the, uh, the ROVs, how we're going to install the uh, the subsea section. It was the most complex subsea construction ever done at the time. This was in 2014. Working in point- a couple of little steps that were missing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, well, this was, uh, yeah, I mean, what what an incredible job that was. It was absolutely phenomenal. Moved over to Singapore. Uh, I was there for two years doing the construction and commissioning at this FPSO and it was it was gigantic, you know, the logistics involved in it. I think it was something like a two billion dollar capex. Right. Jesus. Just to get just to get this one installation in. Right. It was uh, it was at the time BP's biggest project, right? They'd ever sort of conceived in that sort of depth of water. So did that out in Singapore for two years. Absolutely brilliant. What a place to work. Um and obviously working back with BP as well, which was great. So it was, you know, along similar lines to the systems. But again, you know, still that really high level standard because it was all offshore and it was upstream uh, operations. So did that out in Singapore for two years working away and then went to work in Luanda with it as well. So two years uh, in Angola, sort of splitting the time between uh, Luanda back in the UK and also offshore uh, working on this particular installation. Now, two, two years is about the limit anyone can work <laughs> in Angola, right? But I was just going to I've still got colleagues that are still there, or ex-colleagues rather, that are still there. So they've, uh, they've stuck it out, you know, <laughs> absolutely fair play to them. Yeah. But, uh, so two years, yeah. I mean, again, I think the corporate term is challenging right it's a challenging place to work because obviously you know like all places in west africa you've got a element of corruption and having to work your way around that uh obviously and rightly so bp's stance on that was absolutely you know firm no which then caused problems and it's little things like everyone laughs about going through the suez canal which is colloquially called the marlborough canal because you have to dish out cigarettes to the pilots. And it's expected, you know, and it's the same in West Africa. It's not briefcases full of money to win contracts, but it's like little things like gifts and all the rest of it. And, you know, the standpoint from that with UK bribery, just absolutely not, which then in turn the knock-on impact with that is it just makes things tough, right? You know, getting technicians into the country, getting uh, spares and stores out to the FPSOs, it's just a tough old place to work. Mm-hmm. So I did that, and then I was approached by a consultancy company back in Singapore right. to go back out there and do sort of consultancy work under FPSO and LNG stuff, which was obviously sort of getting ramped up. And, yeah, so given the opportunity to go back to Singapore, which is, again, probably, they call it uh, Asia for beginners, right? Because it's just <laughs> such an easy place to work as an expat. It's just really, really good. Yeah. Uh, so I went back and worked with London Offshore Consultants right, out in their Singapore office and did that for two years. So during that time, uh Incredibly interesting work, was involved in the commissioning of two LNG terminals down in Australia in Gladstone. So that was GLNG and QG, QG LNG at Curtis Island. Uh, so that was 
incredibly interesting because I was there representing insurance, right, to make sure that the, because it was a turnkey project that was handed over between the builders and over to the operations team. So it was ensuring that everything was managed correctly. We'll see. Gladstone, was that Downer? It was, it begins with, what's the name? It begins with a B. I forget. It's a big American company as well. Right. I'll find it. It'll come back to me. Right. But they do, they do a lot of, um, they do a lot of terminal stuff. They were involved in Wheatstone uh, for Chevron down in West Australia yeah. as well. So I did that. Uh, so that was two interesting jobs down there. I was actually down in uh, Curtis Island over Christmas. I went down there in December, right? It was only meant to be for two weeks. It's never for two weeks. Never, right? That never, ever goes to plan. And I was there for Christmas, and it really is the back of beyond down in Curtis Island. And I was meant to come back. I think that, I think the, the Aussies call it bum, bum F nowhere. Aye, aye. <laughs> well, the I, can't, I can't believe I actually just mute, uh, censored myself. I don't, I don't need to do that. Christ, Gordon. Anyway. I think they call it, so it's the uh, people that live in that sort of part of the world in Australia are called bogans. Right? Uh, yeah. So basically like hillbillies. Yeah, but yeah. With, the, uh, with the LNG terminal there and the money that was then involved, it's then cashed up bogans. <laughs> yeah. I think that's just uh, any Aussies that work in um, in oh, mine. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I worked in Karatha for two years. Well, not for two years. I worked in Karatha for about a year, and it was the exact same. But anyway, sorry, carry on. So yeah, there over Christmas, and I was staying in this little self-catering, or these, what do they call, like, executive apartments, right, right. that they built for that. And I, had, I was meant to fly back to the UK, because my wife was still in Glasgow. She was still home. And I was meant to fly, obviously, yeah. I was meant to fly home uh, for Christmas and obviously that was torpedoed. And then I had a little, I came back from work and there was like a little letter posted through my door. Right? And it was, uh, I was actually talking to my wife at the time I was reading this and it was for those that are by themselves over Christmas. The Salvation Army are having a drop in if you want to go for your Christmas dinner. And she was killing herself laughing saying you should go, please go. You're in the homeless population of uh, Gladstone. But fortunately, the uh, the insurance manager and the uh, construction manager invited me around to their house for Christmas. So that was quite good. Was, uh, for a barbecue, I wasn't sat there myself, you know, cracker for one. Right? So that... Uh, it doesn't... I, I don't think it feels like Christmas when you're in Australia. That, no, no, it's just so hot. It's the same time. So, it's so yeah, weird. It's weird. For us anyway, it's, it's just totally different. So it almost doesn't feel like you're missing it. It's like... But I remember we we uh, we were out there and one of the local he's actually a Welsh guy and um, he had he would decorate he had this this ute that he basically it would only come out once a year and it had like a kind of flatbed on it and they put built a full uh, Santa sleigh and they used to get a police escort and they would drive it about <laughs> but just like drive it around because it's a very small town and like what the hell is going on here? Oh, uh, it's, it's yeah. a bit odd, but that uh, yeah. So did that two LNG terminals still working for LOC. Did some offshore construction campaign work as well, which is interesting. Riser replacements in the Gulf of Thailand, which is considerably different yeah. from working in the North Sea. <laughs> uh, so yeah, did that. But like everything, you know, all things come to an end. Uh, my wife was still back in the UK and she wanted us uh, back home mm-hmm. after being, you know, doing all these different jobs in Luanda. And the job came up with TK in Glasgow for, they were looking at the time for an LNG assurance manager Yeah. and applied uh, and, yeah, was successful and then moved back to the UK or back to Glasgow in 2016. How did you find the difference from going from... 
Well, I don't, I'm, I'm making an assumption here, considering obviously the terminal in Bahrain, but so it's largely that was that four or five years of essentially project almost work. Yeah, so then, pretty, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. It's interesting. It's, I suppose it's quite a good transition, right? Because a lot of people, when you come direct from sea into an office, it's a huge cultural shift in how you're used to working. Whereas the way, and it was by complete accident, it wasn't by design. Um, I've sort of eased myself into working ashore, you know, so from moving from sailing into offshore, into, you know, uh, construction and commissioning, and then consultancy, which is even, even though it's based in the office, you do spend a lot of time out on jobs because ultimately as a consultant, that's where you make your money. You make, the company makes money for you being in attendance somewhere. So it was that sort of mixture between uh, shore and, you know, sea or offshore, whatever you want to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, You always, you hear so many people when they talk about coming ashore and they sometimes, I mean, some people quite, quite often, some people don't, it doesn't work for them. They, they, they go back within a year and yeah. a lot of people coming ashore don't really, they don't understand when there's a, when there's a, maybe if the company that they're, they're applying for is a bit reluctant. I mean, in, for, for you and in, in your position, when you're bringing people in or like what, what, what would you say or what advice have you got, got advice that you'd say to people coming ashore? Is it the right move or, or not? Or, yeah, I mean, it's funny, this exact circumstance is currently happening right right now. So we had uh, with a guy who I actually sailed with when I was third mate and he was fourth engineer like, in 2002, something like that, you know, like a million years ago. Yeah. And he was uh, sailing as chief engineer and he approached us, you know, about coming ashore. And the advice is, you can't really give advice. You can explain it, right, as to what it's going to be like and the fact that it's a big change and all the rest of it. But until that person actually does it, right, and, you know, they see what it's like, you know, they come behind the curtain, as it were, right, and they're now working from a shore point of view, you can't describe it until they're actually doing it. And it's like everything, it's as it a risk, right, it's a gamble when, you know, from a shore point of view, that you take someone that has no shore experience but they've got an incredible background, you know, and they are such an asset to the company when you get someone like that that's chief engineer, LNG, done yeah. a lot of stuff. To get them in, to come into the technical team is a huge, you know, it is, it's great. You know, they've got a lot of knowledge. They've got a lot of input. Or they immediately have buy-in from the seafarers that they're dealing with because, yeah. you know, they're talking to a chief engineer. But sadly, it's not for everyone and it's not for this chap as well, you know, and exactly you've described, he's done it for a year and he's going back to sea, you know, and he's that's what he's doing. It's just, it's not, I don't like working for TK or I don't like working ashore for TK. It's, I just want to go back to sea. It's not, it's not for me. And that ultimately, it's disappointing from us, right, because obviously you take time on boarding people and getting them into the company ethos. But it's a risk that you continually have to take because it brings that operational experience. Yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. Do you, I mean when you do you guys operate in, in a way where, say, for example, you you I know like from training officers, um, they'll look at members of, of our crew 
and then obviously try and upskill them and, and push them on to the next one. Do you do something similar in terms of like a shore-based rotation for the for the permanent staff that you've got as, as seafarers? Or? You mean like shore-based rotation, what do you mean, they change ships? or No, say for example you've got a, a chief engineer or a second engineer that's highlighted that they might like to come ashore. Oh, mm-hmm. Is there any kind of programme in place where they can maybe do like a almost like an internship ashore and they can get a taster of it or... Yeah, have you been sitting in our meetings, Gordon? That's something that actually yeah, we've been discussing about and it's been the catalyst for that is the situation that I've just described there. Yeah. So TK used to have uh, what they call a graduate programme. So they would take guys that come from a naval architecture background Right. And they would come in exactly like that, um, and they would go through. They would various hoops to jump through before they eventually made it up to vessel manager. So what we're looking at doing is one reinvigorating that program, right. but not only just like for graduates, but also for our engineers that are uh, at sea, right, to give them an opportunity to come in. And then the other one as well that we're looking at is short-term secondments. You know, getting so. We've obviously went through a huge fleet expansion programme with ships coming out left and right. Problem with that is they're all due to dry dock at the same time, which puts a huge burden in the uh, the operational staff. So we're looking then to you know get some of the uh, senior engineers in from sea and get them in secondment to give them a bit of a taste to the office, whether it's six months or 12 months or whatever the case may be. And then it allows them to sort of dip their toe in the water and see actually if it's for them. Because for some of the people that we have taken short-term secondments, which is normally an HSEQ function, right. uh, quite a few of them have actually stayed. So we had one chap uh, who was in secondment for HSEQ that then moved into fleet support officer. Right. And then it's hoped that in time that sort of route for someone will then move up to vessel management. Yeah. So it's a good it's a good way for us. It's also great that it gives seafarers uh, an opportunity to move ashore with, and staying in the same company without having to, you know, take drastic steps. Yeah, I, th- I suppose it's security as well, isn't it? Because it's a big step and it's, whereas if you can do it with familiar people and familiar a familiar, obviously a familiar company it makes a big big difference but mm-hmm, definitely more kind of personal for you then so obviously you'd spent some time I'm always curious we, we'd mentioned this at the start but I'm always curious about the individual's levels of ambition now you don't forgive me if I'm wrong but you don't get to the VP level with any company without being ambitious and when you spent time in, in, in uh, sorry in Rwanda and then you spent time in Singapore like, was there anything that was really kind of pushing you? It's like, I want more or I want to, you, you've been working for four people. Would you, I want to get there? Or what was your thoughts on that? Was there anything? I think, yeah, I think most people that go into any sort of um, disciplined rank structure career, right, whether it's the armed forces, police, merchant navy, whatever, because you've always got, as you're going through it, it's tiered. So you've always got that next that next rank to get to. So it's almost built into you that you 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 do do that. Now, maybe that's just me and not that's not everyone's experience, but I, do, I think you can't help but be ambitious in the career that you're in because right from the start, you know, you start as a deck cadet, next step, third mate, all the way up to master. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's pathed out for you already. So that, and if you've done it for so long, it's just ingrained in you, so you're always looking for that 
you know, that either next step or next challenge or something along those kind of lines. Yeah. No, okay, fair enough. And then, so when you come into TK then, obviously you come into the LNG Assurance Manager and then, as you said earlier on, it's, it's been described, it, it is, it's a, it's, it's a meteoric rise. It's just, it's almost like every... Every every year you were getting promoted and, and moving on, and oh, was there, would someone just put an arm around you and just kind of keep putting you through? Or no, I don't. I think uh, it's it's different. You buy a bigger house and you were struggling to pay for it. You had to keep putting. Or? <laughs> it's hard for me to comment because obviously it was happening to me. So I suppose you would really need to ask Ian his right. thoughts on this, right? right? But I suppose it's like. From from the background that you come from and the projects that you've worked on and everything's very much results driven, right? So, you know, it's uh, set a goal and achieve it, right? You know, and it's that constant, you know, you're always looking to achieve it. You're always look continuous improvement, make something better. If you come in and you looked at, so I came into assurance and, you know, obviously that's all marine operations and so on. Right, okay, so how can I make it better, right? So, you know, you do that and that's what sort of, identified then me because I was banging the drum about competence right so obviously that's a big thing for our industry and we're looking to mitigate experience matrices which have there's several uh, for LNG ships you know so we're looking to sort of mitigate competence with experience etc so I was sort of banging that particular drum and at the time TK decided that they wanted someone to head up Marine HR from an operational background so I was selected for that. So that's how I moved from uh, LNG Assurance Manager over to head up Marine HR. And it required a complete overhaul, right, of how we did things. You know, being the mind, this was under the backdrop of going from like 12 LNG vessels, 44, right? right. So we had a huge manning campaign to get people in, trained, competent, all of this sort of good stuff. And basically I delivered, right? And that's that's along the short of it, you know, so... And because manning is incredibly high profile within any organisation, yeah. uh, because it's the people that are on the ships, and it's some, it's somewhat the forgotten aspect. Everybody sort of concentrates on operations and the technical uh, side of things, which obviously has its place. But from a shore point of view, the vessel manager's not on the tools. It's not he's not fixing you know a jenny or if something's went yeah. down. It's the people on board that are fixing that. And if you get that wrong everything will just, you know, like a house of cards will just come down. Yeah. So, again, delivered on that. And that that was basically it. So then an opportunity many, came up. Sorry, I go. How many people is that? So, obviously, 12, 12 vessels to 44. Like, what's the growth? Like, what's your... Well, it's basically, from a manning point of view, you're nearly uh, quadrupling it, right, in terms of the level of people that you had to come in. We had to have... But it's not just because that's very much firefighting, right? Well, we need all these people in, right? But then you also need to think, you know, a little bit longer term and strategic. Well, okay, so we can plug the gaps at the moment. Where do we want to be in five years? You know, and then that's when you're looking at cadet programs and how are we going to push all these people up? How are we going to ensure that we have a pipeline, the staff rolling through, right? Because not only do you need to comply with uh, time and rank and all that other stuff for yeah. charters, but it's also time and company, so you can't have people being stuck in rank, not moving. You have to keep everything moving along, yeah. which 
when you don't when you move from an expanding fleet to a stationary fleet, you then need to think of other opportunities. Then, so hence why show staff secondments. You've got the Bahrain terminal, right? So you can move people around with that. So yeah, that and again, successful doing that. And then a position came up for fleet director, right? So in a lot of these jobs, interestingly enough, it's not that. Uh, applied or anything like that, with the exception of the marine HR. Right. Everything else has been, by the way, Chris, you're, you're going in there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that was it. It was the same. Uh, one of the fleet directors left to take get on, go in and fix something else. I volunteered. Didn't, like didn't want to get into the engine room. <laughs> <laughs> nah, no thanks. Have you, ever, have you ever opened up a car bonnet after driving in the motorway? See how hot it is? Uh, <laughs> yeah. It always amazes me why people think that's a surprise, right? The engine rooms are hot. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so yeah, and it was the same for fleet director. Uh, one of the guys he left to take up a position in Singapore, and I got a phone call when he handed in his resignation. I had a phone call from my boss saying, "Right, you're, we're moving you in, uh, fleet director." Right, deal with that. And yeah, that's just that's what's just what's been. TK is not the type of company. But you hear companies like BP, Chevron, etc. They identify people as high performers, and they go into like a big bucket of high performance and they get moved around the organization and you know it's very what it's meant to be it's very like okay so this guy we've got his career path mapped out right you know it's very much like that tk although from the outside looking in it looks like a massive company right it's really not it's actually quite small you know in glasgow we have 106 people working in ops we do have a footprint in manila and mumbai and obviously corporate in vancouver but it is very much and I suppose it's always a bit when people say this, right? And like, mm, is that right? It's very much like a family company, right? I mean, it was founded by, you know, uh, Torben Kalshoy, who started it himself and his family were involved in it. Right. And that ethos is still kind of there, even though, the, you know, the, uh, the foundation still makes up a bulk of the major shareholder. It's still that way inclined. It's not so much like that, right? You're now designated as high performer and we're going to move you through, right? It's just, it's almost probably you would disagree, but it's almost like uh, circumstance, right? Rather than uh, design. But maybe that's just me being uh, modest. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree. No, I, I mean it's got a good. It's, it's obviously, from 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 my from what what I do, it's it's got a good reputation, and it's it's it seems like a an an agile company in terms of, and it's 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 ambitious. But I would say everyone in it, they're majority of people you speak to within it, they're happy but I, I, I think you've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head and I, again I, I'm just me I'm, I'm not saying I'm right but when you've got when you're pushing people through and it doesn't seem as if it's just in the, the, the crew side of things when you're pushing when you're promoting people from within it just means that people want to, to buy into it and they're, they're all about it and it's a, it's, fairly, it's a fairly young office when you think about it like you can average age yeah, definitely. A few clients recently saying it's like we need to actually we're too top heavy and we're, we've got a lot of people to tie in the next few years. We need and what now we're 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 basically firefighting to fix it. Whereas I don't think that that's not that's not at all an issue with TK. It's it's, it's very much a case of you came in and you can. There's nothing you can't achieve almost. Yeah, no, absolutely. And see the thing. So I'm a big fan of that. Um, you know, pro- promoting from within, you know, probably to the annoyance of you, right, you know, in recruitment. But that, uh, I think if you're bringing, you want people to be successful, you want people to come in 
at you know vessel manager level or HSEQ or whatever the case is. And you know there is opportunities to move around and do different things. But you want them to remain in the organisation and you want them to move up. Not everyone can set the world on fire, right? And people, you're going to have people that are happy doing whatever they're doing and that's fine. But you're also going to have people that are ambitious and they want to sort of move up. And being able to retain that, you know, that's the challenge of for me and uh, for HR as well to sort of keep people within the company. But yeah, absolutely, you do. You absolutely want to do that. I mean, our view on this is, if we can help it, we would never bring in anyone um, at a senior level, right? That would always be from within because it's it's such a risk when you bring someone in that's an unknown, right? So that because it can really, really be disruptive, right? In the same way, it can also be if you get the right candidate, yeah. it can be really good, but it is such a gamble. Yeah. And moreover than that, if people within the company see that, well, I'm not good enough, and you're bringing in someone external, that's. It's not failing on them. It's actually a failing on the organisation that we've not developed them enough, right, to be in a position ready to take the next step. No, no. Obviously, I probably shouldn't say it, but yeah, I think you're right. (laughs) 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 We'll cut that bit out. (laughs) But no, no, it's, it's, it's good to see. See, when you look back, so obviously right now, I get the impression that you love what you do, to be fair, but when you look back, is there any part, I mean, what part of your career do you, when you're sitting on a Friday night with a glass of wine, do you look back and go, I love that, or you, you tend to tell the stories of that time again? Is there a particular time, or is it now? Uh, it's not now, because yeah. I've only, you know, I've only been, I was only appointed in June, right, when I took over uh, from Ian, so I'm not quite... I'm not quite really? that, that all wispy on a Friday night thinking, yeah, <laughs> not, uh, particularly not under the backdrop of COVID. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I don't. I, th- I don't think there's one. There's not one. There's there's standout parts in your career that you think of. That you think, yeah, that was that was really good. You know, the the P the BP Angola one in particular, sail it, the moment sail away, that was really satisfying, you know, the ship coming out of the uh, coming out of the yards under its own power for a couple of hours and then we had to get it towards <laughs> right. But that uh, but that was really good. The again first oil on PSVM that was you know quite special then as well. We had <laughs> We had Dallas, the theme tune from Dallas blasted out in the control room. <laughs> so, but, you know, little, uh, little moments like that where you think, and it's to be honest, it's not so much, I suppose it's not the process, it's the people around it, right? So you'd remember, you know, the guy who was sat next to me at the time uh, that I still see, we still play golf, uh, he lives in Thailand, I'll meet him when I go over to Singapore. So him and I were in the control room and that happened, right? So yeah, things like I suppose like that. I suppose really the offshore campaign. Uh, yeah, see the things that I've described to you because I mean, there's lo- there's loads, right? There's absolutely loads and loads of stuff. They're the sort of standout uh, career highlights that you think about. I wouldn't necessarily say I think about them on a Friday night, right? But <laughs> yeah, just it, it sort of creeps up on you, and you just like have a little bit of a smile, and you think, oh yeah, I remember that. Uh, no, brilliant, brilliant. So I mean, right now, obviously. What what's next for TK? Is it is there is there is there changes coming? Is there anything? Well, obviously, I don't know if you're what you're able to say. Like, what do you yeah. think? Where, where is, 
Well, I mean, the the big thing, like all, like everyone now, is sustainability and what that's going to look like for uh, 2030, 2050. So there's a lot of work going into what what is next for TK. Obviously, I'm very much focused on the gas side of things and LNG is considered to be, rightly or wrongly, whether people agree or disagree, uh, it is considered a clean fuel, right? And it is considered to be what's going to be a gateway fuel, right? You know, as ships move into various other means of propulsion and fuel, you know, coming into 2030 and 2050, BP, for instance, uh, Bernard Looney's already stated that they're going to, I think it's treble their LNG uh, output and all of that. So, I mean, in terms of future for us and sustainable, we're in really, really good shape. We've went through, you know, the fleet expansion and it's good to take a bit of a breath after having done all that because it's been, you know, for want of a better word, frantic, you know, getting all these ships coming out. And it's not just your bog standard LNG vessels, you know, we had the whole working up in the Arctic, never been done before, right? You know, that came with its own challenges uh, with that. What's next for us? Obviously, there's, um, and I can't say too much on this, but there's big tenders coming out that we're going to be going involved in. So hopefully, we'll be going in for another period of expansion in the coming years. But again, the expansion has to be right for the business. It has to have the right risk profile and the correct um, investment rate of return. Right. That is worth it. You know, there was, uh, what I can say is there's certain ones that we, we absolutely bowed out of. Uh, Mozambique LNG, not for us, right? You know, it's the risk profile is quite high. Working mm-hmm. down there, there was another uh, Yamal 2, you know, back up in the Arctic, but we've already got six vessels up there, so we didn't want to have, and it's like everything, like all good businesses like to spread the risk. So yeah. rather than having all your eggs in the Arctic basket or all your eggs in the, uh, the Africa basket, it's important to sort of spread that around. So... I think for us, obviously, we'll be looking along the lines of your conventional LNG stuff. That's always going to be the case. But again, it's forming part of this 2030 strategy. What else do we want to be involved in? You know, we've got the Bahrain terminal over there, which is a re- offshore regas unit with an FSU. Is that something we want to be getting involved in as well? Probably. It's quite, you know, it's quite a developing market, gas to power. Look to get involved in that, but again, it has to be for the right project. It's not yeah. just a case of you know we'll do we'll do anything, right? So it's very much you know is it is that a right fit for TK? Is that what we want to get involved in? The other thing is like the small scale LNG, which we've actually we are involved in. We do have uh, ethylene carriers as well. How's that going to look? Mm-hmm. And you know, really tracking demand and what things are going to look like for the future. But yeah, and any more yourself? Are you any plans to move to Vancouver? No. <laughs> is that is that no, the next that'll be next year? <laughs> no, well, right, maybe. No. <laughs> no, no. That uh, so from the the corporate side of things, obviously that's where Vancouver is. Uh my boss is out there, he's the CEO, and they've got the board and all that sort of stuff. So that's out there at the moment. Uh no, so no plans. It's a nice place to visit. Right? It's nice to nice to go out and see. But no, no plans to move out to Vancouver. Okay, brilliant. Like, I'm conscious of time here. I don't want to take up too much of time. No. Um, there's plenty more I want to ask you, to be honest, um, but we can, we'll maybe do it again if, if we can. But in terms of some of the things that we, we ask everyone that comes on, it's, it's about the influences. Obviously, you've, you've spoken about a few people in different different parts of your career and obviously the early early days with your, your, your granddad. But 
Is there anyone that you'd say has been a big influence on your career? I wouldn't say there's there's not there's not one particular standout person, and the reason that is is because obviously you move around, right? So, in particular, when you're sailing, you work with some incredible captains and some incredible engineers that you work with, who you know do a lot of mentoring with you and all of that. So, I think you know you work when you're at a junior level and you work with people that have that sort of influence and, you know, because at that point it's them that instill the the professional standard in you, you know, and it's that, and you, you look to them and think, actually, that's what I want to, I want to be. So there's, you know, captains that I sailed with in BP, incredible guys, you know, like really, really professional, loads of integrity, do things right, say what they do, do what they say, all this sort of stuff, or walk to talk, whatever sort of corporate euphemism you want to use. <laughs> Same in BP Angola, loads of guys, incredibly professional people. Even um, moving to LOC, uh, my old boss, Nick Haslam as well, big influence, just, you know, super knowledgeable, always, you know, wanted to do the right thing, do the best job that you possibly could. So, you know, you meet all these different people along your career, that really do influence you. At the time, you don't think, oh, I'm being really influenced by you, right? Yeah. But when you look back on it, it's these guys that sort of instill that level of professionalism. And it's hoped, right, you know, that I do the same, right, and other people that you, you sort of come into contact with, and that's how it all sort of goes along. It's different when you move, it is, it is different when you move around because you're not working with the same people all the time. So, right. That can be an advantage or a disadvantage to whatever way you want to look at it. But in the, in the same way you sail with some really good guys, you sail with some absolute zoomers, right, you know, as well. So, yeah. The, <laughs> that, the is, that, is that corporate speak again there? <laughs> zoomers, yeah. Yeah, I shouldn't have really said that. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously not. TK, you never sailed with TK, so... No, no, no. no back I'll in the day, all good guys there, yeah. But that, I suppose that's what I, I do remember when I was sailing and thinking, if I don't, if I end up here, staying here my entire career, I'm going to turn into some of these guys. For, you know, the model railway brigade. Nothing wrong with model railways, just not for me. Right? <laughs> I don't know what I'll get you for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to it. <laughs> um, uh, okay, brilliant. Well, la- last question. Um, I, I don't know if we've already you've already said it, but what's what's your first memory of of the industry? What's your first memory of being a vessel or being a ship or at the end of your childhood? Or? I su- well, I suppose my, the the first memory of that is because again, you know, living in Lindsay, you're not in a port or anything <laughs> like that, so you're not waving at ships as they go past. Yeah. And I suppose the the main thing would be joining your first ship. That's really imprinted on you. And out of all the ones that you you then work on, it's that one that you always remember. You know, I remember the date that I joined it. I remember the port. Sorry, the date. Yeah, when and where was it? So it was on the 4th of January in 1998. And it was in a place called Djibouti. Now, I got a phone call, and I think it was like December the 20th, something like that, from... Uh, the London office to say, right, Chris, you're joining the Shiboni, you're joining in Djibouti, you got a pen, here's your flight details. And I came off the phone and my mum's like that, oh, where are you? So where are you going? I was like, oh, Djibouti. She's like, where is that? I was like, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I had to get, because obviously the days before smartphones and all this sort of stuff, I had to get an atlas, right, and find out where Djibouti was. It's in East Africa, for those that don't know, right? (laughs) 
it's in the Horn of Africa, as it's called. And yeah, joined that. I had three days in Djibouti and joined this ship. And I remember walking along the jetty wall and looking at this thing, thinking, how the hell have I ended up here? <laughs> like a wee squeaky voice, 17-year-old from Lindsay is in East Africa about to join this thing. <laughs> so yeah, that was more of a riding. That's my, my first memory of that. That's brilliant. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thanks thanks again. I really, really enjoyed it. And stories like that, it just makes it worthwhile for, for obviously, for me as well. I love all that kind of stuff. I love hearing how it's not always where you are right now. It's where, where you've came from. So, no, I appreciate it. But thanks for thanks for joining us. And um, hopefully we'll get you back on. Aye, thanks, Gordon. Thanks very much for having us. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much. Cheers.